As I was sitting tonight, I was thinking of my teacher's instructions for meditation. I, I learned Zen meditation, which is a, a little more strict than Vipassana, but it's the same thing, exactly the same thing. Um, but the strictness comes in the posture, so that um, we're supposed to be as upright as we possibly can. So there's a a lot of talk about exactly how the shoulders are and how the nose is lined up with the navel and the ears with the shoulders and um, the hands are held against the belly so that the breathing, you're you're aware of the breathing as as the air comes in and out from way down here. It's very helpful, actually, because our tendency often is to breathe shallowly from the chest. And there's a tightness here that uh, is very uncomfortable, and we're often not aware of it. So that's part of it, too. And um, then at the very, very end, after all the instructions, and and you're sort of sitting like you think maybe you're supposed to be, he reminds you that a a little smile would be nice. (laughs) It all sounds so serious. And yet, a little smile. And if you look at statues of Buddha and the Bodhisattvas, you often see that smile. That um, Otherwise, it's too heavy. I've just been reading a book about the emotions, a very interesting book. I wish I could remember the title. It's by... Um, a man who's working, who's been working at UCSC for many, many years, studying the um, physiology of the face and all the different muscles of the face, and how our expressions are are wired into us, so that wherever you go, all over the world, an angry expression is the same, and a happy expression is the same exactly the same, using the exact same muscles. They took thousands, hundreds of thousands of photographs. They even went to um, 30 years ago when there was still such a thing to a Stone Age culture where they didn't know anything and found the same expressions, exactly the same expressions. Very, very interesting. And one of the things that he said is that they have now um, proved that uh, however we express our face is reflected in a, uh, uh, becomes our mood. So if we go around with a very grouchy face, we feel grouchy. And if we, if we simply smile, it lightens our mood. So I don't think Coben knew that when he gave those instructions for sitting, but I, I, it certainly helps. And, and I hope you all try it because it really makes a difference. And often we come to sitting with various moods of various kinds depending on what's happening in our life. And just to remember that little smile, uh, not a fake smile and not a great big ha-ha smile because that's silly, that's, that doesn't work, but just a little contentment smile or a lightness smile. Oh, life Life is serious and it's very difficult and often painful, but here I am. Here we are. Isn't this fine? 
at least for this moment. I've think, been thinking a lot about um, paying attention. Um, there's an old Zen story. And somebody comes and asks the Zen master, what is the essence of Buddhist teaching? And the master looks at him and he says, attention. And he says, yeah, of course, we all know that. But what, what, what's the real, you know, the real scoop on it? Mm-hmm. And the master says, attention and he says oh tell me more please tell me more and the master says attention 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 (laughs) that was it we talk about paying attention and I've always been interested in that how how we say that that and I often think about paying the coins of attention um, it, it, it sounds like money. It sounds like we're actually giving something in order to attend. And it's true, isn't it? Um, if we're not paying attention, we're shutting ourselves off and denying ourselves, uh, or denying the world of ourselves, you could say. And when we are paying attention, we're actually giving our self to the world in a way, in a very important way. It's, it's a kind of opening up, and it's, it's an extra step, you could say. Um, often we're so involved in our own life and problems that it's very hard to pay attention to what's going on around us. And we have all uh, ways of noticing that, you know, oh, he's lost in his own world or living in an ivory tower. It's all the ways that we describe that we close ourselves up and away from the world. So paying attention is actually being willing to experience um, things our life, our world, as it is, not as we want it to be, or not as we don't like it, so we're turning away from it, but just as it is. Attention, attention, attention. And actually, it's, it's very helpful tonight as we were sitting, um, all the sounds around us were so clear. Um, the whoosh of air as a car goes through it. It's happening all the time. But when we sit down quietly, it becomes a part of us. It's not just our world out there. It becomes a part of us. It's swishing right through our belly, and right through our heart. That little dove, did you hear the little dove? It's very helpful to attend to the sounds as we sit because that's what's actually happening. And that can bring us back over and over. Oh, I'm thinking about this and this. Coo, coo, coo. Oh, 
here we are. Here we are. Anything can be helpful in that way. And of course, our breath um, and many, many of our instructions are about attending to our breath. Um, One of Buddha's most uh, important and helpful teachings is the Satipatthana Sutra, which talks, first of all, about attending to the breath, paying attention to the breath, Um, not driving it. That's what we uh, like to do. We can, we can actually make ourselves breathe in the way that we want to, we think we want to breathe. Oh, I'm going to breathe really deep and really slow. Um, And we can force it, but you can feel that enforcement in your body. It's a strain. It's very difficult. And Buddha said, oh, don't worry about that. If it's a short breath, let it be a short breath. And if it's a long one, let it be a long one. It sounds so easy. Oh, we just let it go, of course. And when we wake up in the morning, we've been doing that all night. It's really wonderful if you just lie there in bed and your belly is soft and it's going up and down just as it wants to and your whole body is breathing itself without any interference at all. It's been doing that for eight hours, all, all by itself. And then we become aware of it. And then we start um, engineering it. Um, and of course, we don't engineer it all day long. But often when we sit, we become terribly aware of it and then begin to... Um, direct it in some way. It's a wonderful, wonderful teaching because the kind of letting go that is required in order to let the breath breathe itself is the same kind of letting go that we have with each other and with paying attention. That we only can really experience things if we let our tight hold on ourselves, trying to control our life and ourselves, and open up to what's actually happening. Coben used to say it takes about 20 years in meditation to learn how to uh, let the breath go, to really let it go. So don't worry. <laughs> And maybe it takes even longer than that for some people. I still have problems with it, especially if I'm really uptight about my life and and I'm in a hurry. I think speed has a great deal to do with it. We get very tense when we're in in the speed mode. And so slowing down um, and just letting the breath be what it wants to be uh, takes, takes a lot of discipline, actually even though it sounds like, oh, well, we just let it go. Um, Not so easy, but very, very helpful practice. Very helpful. In in our practice, we often talk about uh, 
how complicated it is when we get up. It's one thing to sit in this simplicity and especially with other people who are doing the same thing. But then what do we do? We get up and we go out and get in our familiar car and hit the freeways and go home to the telephone and all the complications that it home means as well as the, the sweetness and the joy that is often home also. It's complicated our life. And that instruction about attention is extremely important. It's so easy to have such a strict agenda for ourselves that we miss what's actually going on. If I'm trying to get from point A to point B, I've got to get there because then after I get there, I have to go somewhere else. And after that, there's somewhere else. And so even in the course of being where I am, I'm already three steps ahead. Uh, We often do that to ourselves. It's how our life is put together. This world is so speeded up that it's very hard to slow down. And this practice of paying attention, paying the coins of attention, is very helpful in slowing things down. Um, It helps not to have the radio on all the time or the TV because that's always drawing us away from where we are. We think, oh, I I do this a lot. I turn on the radio when I get restless in the car because I do a lot of driving. And then I start hearing all the horrible news and things get and then I start trying to think of something else so I won't think of the horrible news and pretty soon I'm if I have a scrambled brain and I think it's very easy to do that Uh, it's harder to turn it off and just keep driving and be aware of what's actually happening because cars are speeding by. It's a little bit dangerous all the time. People cut in front of us and cause problems and there's a rush of adrenaline and and it's easy to get upset. But all of that is the reality. And once you begin to actually experience the reality of what's happening, you have some kind of sense of who you are and what the world is. It isn't our agenda. It isn't any of the words that we think about it. It isn't how it's explained in television or the newspaper. It isn't any idea. We have all these thinkings and ideas about how things are. But to actually experience it, we have to feel it in our bodies and in our minds. So this meditation practice is extremely important because of that. Because this is one place where we can't distract ourselves very well. We can, of course, because we're so ingenious as human beings. We can distract ourselves even when there's nothing to do except do nothing. Um, Somebody was describing to me a couple of nights ago at our Tuesday night group in San Jose said his mind was full of plans and he thought, one more thought, of course, 
I'm not going to do this anymore. So he was looking at the floor, um, because in Zen we keep our eyes open, and the floor started putting out all kinds of strange images, faces, animals, houses, all kinds of little pictures were appearing on the rug. It's called makyo in Japanese. It's very usual in sitting. If you try too hard not to think, your mind <laughs> just keeps on doing something because it doesn't want to stop. You can't make it stop. I have a friend who went to a retreat and she managed to deal with that and she managed to deal with the thinking, but she couldn't manage the itches because her body started throwing up itches to her trying to say oh come on come on you don't want to do this come on let's go somewhere else we don't want to be here so it's very helpful to know about ourselves this this tricky mind of us that we can't make do something it just makes it harder it makes our mind and our life into two things the one that wants to be a certain way and the one that's actually being that way. So I told Dan, all you can do for those pictures on the floor and all the thinking in your mind is hold it all in your in the arms of your heart. Just let, acknowledge it and know it and watch it and let it be. It's okay. It's just what we are. And this sitting practice itself is allowing this being, being what we are, being as it is. Suzuki Roshi didn't say being as we are. He said being as it is. It takes it right out of the personal, doesn't it? Because ultimately it's not personal. Or it's both personal and completely impersonal. We are our own individual, absolutely incredible self, of which there will never be another. The most unusual and um, fascinating and bottomless, really incomprehensible um, ongoing being of each one of us. And that that one of us is a part of the all of it, part of the great being, you could say, the infinite being of all of us. And so all this coming and going is, is unlimited in that sense and completely limited in the other sense. And actually in our breathing we can feel that also. We feel it in our own body both our tremendous limitation, our knees hurt, our back and our shoulders hurt, and at the same time, there's a kind of timeless feeling often, a feeling of being at one, breathing at one with everything, breathing with the grass and the trees, breathing with the motorcycles and the stars, That's the ultimate truth of it, of course. And the truth of us in our incredible, limited, 
fascinating, unknowable personality, personness. It's both sides. Both sides. And Zen, we say not one, not two. You can't say it's all one, but you can't say it's all two either. So much of our life and our experience is actually very, very paradoxical. And we try hard to make a kind of uh, coherent story out of it. Our minds work that way. We we try to make things uh, into a story, a storyline, we say. But the truth is that's all in retrospect. It's only when we look back that we see what we think we remember happened. Um, Truth is, we don't completely remember what happened. We just think we do. And much of our memory has been clipped and snipped to fit our picture of how we think we actually are. Um, So it's all been sort of um, created, self-created. And in in meditation practice, that self-creation doesn't really go away, but it becomes visible. We begin to see uh, how our mind is working and how we we create um, and and how we edit. When we're sitting and can't escape what's going on in our mind, The mind just keeps on unrolling itself and telling itself stories all the time. And it's after a while, it becomes obvious how uh, we amuse ourselves by and and console ourselves by by creating a story that feels more coherent. Um, Often we struggle and suffer because of the mistakes that we make. And, and our confusion because things are so confusing and there's so much we don't know. And with the notion that we should be able to understand everything, uh, we begin to recreate ourselves. So sitting is one of the places where that activity becomes more clear. And we can actually um, see through it, it becomes transparent so that we don't have to be caught by it and can even be amused by it. Oh, I was really giving myself you know, a lot of points for that thing that actually didn't happen that way anyway. There's a Korean Zen teacher who, whose whole teaching is only don't know only don't know. Um, On one level, of course, we do know. We have to know. We know to stop for a red light. We know our own name. If we get knocked out, they always ask us who's the president and who are we and where do we live. We have to know those things. Otherwise, we're lost. But on the ultimate level, uh, we don't know. Moment by moment, we don't know in the way that 
it's extremely important to be paying attention so that we are present for what is happening so that moment by moment we know who we are and where we are we're present for being this as we are it's often very surprising uh, to really develop a practice of being awake this way Uh, because life seems so much more rich you would think it would be the opposite it would be limiting all the input but each small detail then in the present moment as we live it becomes terribly interesting and so everything opens up there's a wonderful story maybe some of you know it maybe you know it because I tell it sometimes um, about William James when he was a young student at Harvard a young science student um, and he was uh, put in the class of, or asked to go into the class of the famous Alvarez. And Alvarez was uh, probably the most important scientist in, in the late 1800s in America. Very brilliant, uh, studying the nervous system and uh, the mind. William James went to him and asked if he could be his student. And Alvarez said, well, I, I don't want to take you right away I'll, I'll see how you how you actually work first I'll set you a test and if you pass the test then you can be in my class so he's put him in a room with a pickled fish a fish in formaldehyde and said I want you to sit here here's some paper here's a pen you write down every detail that you can see in in this fish and I'll come back at the end of the day and see how you've done. So William James wrote and wrote and wrote for two and a half hours. And he thought, oh, I've done everything I can do. Describe the whole fish, every single little piece of it. I know I have. So he stopped for lunch and then he went back and huh, he was surprised. There were more things that he could write. So he kept writing until five o'clock in the afternoon. And Alvarez came back and he looked at what he had done pages and pages by then. And he said, oh, you're doing really well. He said, come back tomorrow at 8 (laughs) o'clock. And he had him do it for three days straight. And at the end of the third day, he said, Mr. James, I hope you understand now that there is no end to the fish however long you sit and write about the fish there is no end to it so that's that's that part of it as you can see without distraction we begin to really see what's here and to feel it not just know it up here but to feel it I'm sure William James never forgot that fish so that's what I thought to talk about tonight and um, I hope you all will have some questions and have some discussion Um, it's your turn now
about is, you know, some some people who are studying the brain these days say that actually what our brains have to do is there's so much stimulus going on that it's a struggle just to keep it all out. And that what our brains are doing is simplifying the world so that we can comprehend it because there's too much stimulus. That's right. That's right. So, th- so that if we're overstimulated, if we if we got things going on all the time, that stimulation comes from TV. In my lifetime, television has gone from well, I don't know numbers, I don't know how to measure it, but from talking in an ordinary way, you know, um, the old announcers uh, back in the 50s when TV was just beginning talked like ordinary people. Now they talk like this all the time and everything is very, very fast and even the teachers in school now have to talk very, very fast and create a lot of excitement in even kindergarten and first grade because kids have been exposed to TV for so much, so long, that they can't take things in in a slow, quiet way. So it's, it's true. It's absolutely true. And I do believe that practicing, once we begin to practice, that we uh, can choose whether we get that stimulation or not in many, many ways. We don't have to watch TV at all, for instance, um, or do a lot of the other things that we do in order to keep ourselves stimulated and overstimulated. It's, it's true. And then the brain is trying to sieve it all out and try to make choices because we have to choose. And even that choosing is, creates so much tension and so much suffering. And our culture is based on choosing also. Our, our economic situation is based on uh, creating desire in us. You know, I want that, I don't want that. Or they say, you should have this, and if you don't have that, you're, you're missing something. Um, or if you, have this, if you have this toothpaste, that your life will turn around and you will be happy forever after. You know, all these things saying, oh, come, come, come. And... And unless we set ourselves apart from that, and we can, we don't have to take all of that in. But it's it's hard to do. Yes. Yes. Good point.
Yes, then you then you can attend to your mind down here in your belly rather than paying attention to all this sort of the turning that goes on up there, where it it never stops. You know, Aiken Roshi said we we squirt thoughts and ideas the way the stomach squirts juices, mm-hmm. um, but we don't have to attend to them or take them so seriously. And and you're right, it's just, much of it is habitual. And much of it is conditioning, which is, you know, that that whole economic situation also is part of our conditioning. And And we don't have to hate it or throw it away, but just see it for what it is. Yes. And uh, being mindful and aware of of this compulsion to chase thoughts or whatnot. It's oh, that's just my mind doing what it's used to do. Yes. And that allows me to stop. Mm hmm. And so now it doesn't feel such a compulsion. Yes. Yes. It doesn't drive you. You can drive it. You know, you're um, behind it. Yeah. Yeah, very good point. Thank you. Yes. share. I'm a high school teacher, and last week I went to a workshop for teachers, and the presenter shared with us something about research that had been done much, how much was actually being heard that a teacher might say in the classroom. <laughs> and, it, and the research said that it was about 20% of what was being that, and then, and then the, the further research was that within 24 hours of that 20%, half was forgotten. Mm. And, uh, and so it, it, there's something sort of liberating in that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so really paying any attention. <laughs> Yes. Okay. And the rest of the time, it, it, just like the kids sitting in school thinking about what they want to be or who their friends are or some bad thing that happened to them or where they're going to go. Yeah. I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. Here. Mary Orr always says that when our mind wanders off that way and we notice it and bring it back, that that's enlightenment. Mm. Buddha means waking up. So it's about waking up. So that's really, literally, a wake-up and return. So it's not something to, to be sorry about, but just to um, appreciate that we're able to do that and to come back. Those poor kids. Ten <laughs> percent they're left with. Oh, <laughs> Hmm. Interesting. It 
seems like there's so much potential knowledge out there that there's room in your brain to stuff it all in. Oh, they say we hardly use any of the brain. They say we hardly use any of it, actually. But there's so much there. The potential is tremendous. But yeah, a human being is very new, extremely new, which is why I think we have so many problems. You know, it, it's, it, we haven't been around for very long, and so we're still trying to figure out how to do this, how to be this. And, and how extremely helpful it is when someone comes along like um, Lao Tse or Jesus or Buddha or Gandhi, um, some great mind that can help us um, in finding our, our way, making sense out of this um, confusion. Anything else? Yes. Well, that's probably the most basic question in Buddhism and probably the biggest and the least answerable one at the same time. It's, it's um, what, what is mind? Mind, um, in Zen we say mind is Buddha. Or sometimes we say mind is Buddha. Uh, and then sometimes um, say no mind, no Buddha. Um, or sometimes mind and body, or, or heart mind, and um, heart mind is Buddha. Thinking is just a, a piece of it, consciousness is a piece of it. In Buddhism, we can analyze all the parts of us as we're an amalgamation of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, and mind. Um, All of those coming together, consciousness, um, form and feeling, um, the way way we, we are assembled. We're parts that have been assembled you could say. And mind is an element of that, the one unseen element. You can see your toenails and um, breathe your breath, but you can't see your mind. Uh, it's, it's most mysterious. And it has many, many levels, of course, many, many 
experiences. Um, and it's extremely difficult to talk about. It's, it's why this sitting practice in, in, in the most profound way is untalkaboutable. It's, I, I often say that it's like trying to talk about swimming and understand swimming if you've never been in the water. So getting in the water and actually getting familiar with it is the most important part of it. Um, so that you begin to study it yourself rather than uh, trying to get it from as one more idea. Ideas are a dime a dozen, but experience is so precious. So in Zen we say that Uh, to study Buddhism is to study the self meaning the mind of us meaning our whole life mind meaning mind and body because you can't separate them in fact more and more they're finding that that they're completely connected they're finding that uh, some of our thinking happens in our viscera Mm -hmm. that there there are nerves there that are connected to the brain and that this actually is thinking. Our guts are thinking. And it's in our language. You know, we feel it in our guts. Um, so it, they're, they're completely one mind and body. And we talk about my mind um, or your mind, but actually, um, in, in the end, it's just mind. It's just the whole thing um, as it unfolds seamlessly. There are many, many studies of the mind and many different schools of Buddhism that talk about different ways of analyzing it. Um, they're, They're... considered sometimes to be ten different layers of the mind and you pass through them as you sit uh, longer and deeper um, then you start out with sort of a simple mind a simple mind of of enjoyment and then it gets um, lighter and easier and um, even if eventually just becomes equanimous and loses the sense of joy but becomes more balanced and at ease and, and all these different layers of mind. It always seems strange to me to talk about it too much because it turns it into an it and it isn't really an it. Um, it it's us. And, and we, we are that, the mind of it. So uh, I feel that the more we study it, the, the more respectful silence should go into the study um, and just see where it carries us. Okay? Well, let's sit for the last 15 minutes. I want to encourage you all to sit as much as you can. If, if this has meaning to you, it, it, it will grow and, 
and encourage you more and more the more you sit. Um, So, more is better. <laughs>